Good morning, everybody. Andy's already prayed for us, so I'm going to get straight into God's Word. Right now, just next door, the babies are all sitting in crash, and they're probably having an amazing time. There will be lots of playing going on. There will probably be a fight over a toy at some point. Someone will hit someone over the head. They'll have a tug of war, and there could be a few tears, and someone will be victorious. There'll be some dirty nappies. There'll be food. There'll be dummies. And I'm pretty sure before we even finish talking here, some of them will have fallen asleep. And that's completely fine, isn't it? That's babies acting like babies. Just what we would expect. But in this hall over here, if we were acting like that, that would be a bit of a problem. If we were running around in nappies, throwing tantrums, there would be a problem. You see, we cannot act like babies. We are meant to be more mature than that. And the passage we're going to look at today focuses on this issue. It focuses on spiritual maturity. We all mature, we all age physically. We know that, we know that, and we know how easy that is. But how do we mature spiritually? Is it something we can measure? Is it important to God? And if it is, should it be important to us? Those are all very good questions. They're questions we're hopefully going to answer in this passage. But before we get too detailed, let's have a quick recap of where we are. So we've been looking at 1 Corinthians for a few weeks now. We know that it's a letter that's been written by Paul. It's been written to the church in Corinth. That's where Southern Greece is today. Paul stayed in that church for about a year and a half. He was the, the teacher there. And this letter is written a few years after that. Uh, Paul is writing the letter to the church and he's answering a few practical questions that they have. Um, the background that will be especially relevant to us today is that we should note that Corinth was a really big, really important, really wealthy city. So they were quite arrogant about their riches and their possessions, and they were also quite arrogant about the knowledge that they had. They viewed themselves as very well educated, a very sophisticated culture. So their culture viewed knowledge and everything that went with knowledge, debating and orators and, and speaking, it viewed all of that almost as a national obsession. So let's say now you lived in Corinth, the best thing you could do on a Saturday night would be to put on your finest clothes, walk down to the theatre, the auditorium, and listen to a talk there by one of the famous orators in the city. That's the best thing you could possibly do on a Saturday night. They loved listening to entertaining and clever speakers. Most of them had a favourite speaker and, and a reason why they loved this one and reasons why they maybe didn't like some of the other ones. The closest example I can think of for us today is probably comedians. So that's Michael McIntyre if you're British, or Trevor Noah if you're South African. And you'll have reasons why you love these comedians and why you find them really good. So actually, maybe the people of Corinth weren't that different to us today. Think how many of us listen to TED Talks or various podcasts as we go about our week. Did you know that every hour on YouTube, 30,000 hours of content are uploaded? Every hour, 30,000 hours. That's a lot of stuff to listen to and watch, isn't it? We maybe love content, we love listening to talks just as much as those people did. Maybe the obsession didn't die out in the old days. Anyway, that's the background to the book. In terms of how we're going to look at this passage today, we're going to break it up into three mini sections. And the first of those sessions, those sections that we're going to look at, is in verses 1 to 9. So it starts off in verses 1 and 2. Paul says, Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. 
I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. So Paul is saying here, they are spiritual babies. They are mere infants in Christ. He's saying they're not mature Christians. They're still feeding on bottles of milk. They can't have proper food. So one of the challenges in this section, or one of the questions that we need to answer to understand it is, why are these guys spiritual babies? What were they doing that was clearly so bad? I think Paul gives us the answer in verses 3 and 4. He says, You are still worldly, for since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? Isn't that a great insult to give someone? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? So here's the problem. Some in the church follow Paul, some follow Apollos. So what they've done is they've taken their current, their city culture that they're surrounded by, and they've brought it straight into the church. They're looking at their church leaders, just like they do the orators and the debaters, and they're picking favorites. They want to hear or worship their human leaders, kind of just like everyone else in the city does. Now the reason that Paul and Apollos are the two that are, that are spoken about is because they were the church leaders there at various times. Paul, we, we obviously know a lot about, don't we? He was one of the one of the main figures in the New Testament. He wrote so many of the so many of the of the letters. Apollos may be a, a little less well known, but Acts 18 does help us a bit with a bit of background about Apollos. It says, when he, and it's talking about Apollos, <clears throat> arrived in Corinth, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So we can see from that verse, um, Apollos was one of the good guys. He's a good, godly guy. In particular, he seems to have been a good, a good teacher, a good debater. So he would have fitted into the Corinth culture really well. They would have loved this guy. So here we are in Corinth with two really good teachers, Paul and Apollos. They're both teaching the Bible. They're both serving the church. And what do the people in the church do? Well, it says there, they start to compare them. They start to pick favorites. They stir up jealousy and quarreling, which we see in verse 3. Basically, they squabble and fight like babies over a toy. Now, it could be so easy to dismiss this, don't you think? Maybe Paul was a slightly better teacher. Maybe Apollos was a better evangelist. Maybe Paul used more illustrations in his sermon and was, was nicer to listen to. Maybe Apollos finished dead on time so no one burnt the lunch at home. We, we, we don't know all this stuff. But... We do know that Paul does not take a light-hearted view. He views this as very serious, and he calls them out on it. He says Christians need to rise above this. He says they are spiritually immature. This is how the world acts, and unfortunately, it's so often how, how Christians can act as well. And when we think about our world today, that's true, isn't it? If we think about any industry, any part of society, I'm pretty sure, without too much effort, we'll be able to think of some leading figures from that industry. Should we give it a go? So if I say business, who has immediately thought of Bill Gates, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, those Google guys? Quite easy, hey? Politics? Boris Johnson, Angela Merkel, Donald Trump, gotta be in there. Art? Picasso, Monet, Ali Gordon. Football? Uh, Ronaldo, Messi, Harry Kane for the Tottenham Hotspur fans. It's really easy, isn't it? We all naturally put names to it. Society, whether we're talking about 2,000 years ago or now, is the same. We push people into the limelight. 
and into fame. So hero-worshipping people is not uncommon. Anyway, that's what we mustn't do. That's all the negatives. Paul then says in verse 6 to 9 what we should do. And from verses 6 to 9, he uses the illustration of a field. So we had immature babies. Those are the ones who weren't growing. We now have a field, which most definitely is growing. And Paul makes the point, we need to be like this field. We need to be maturing. And the point is, the point in this illustration, is that a field doesn't care who plants it. It doesn't care who waters it. It doesn't care who does any of the work. If a field is properly prepared, so if it's got soil, it's got water, it's got sunshine, <coughs> some seeds, it's going to grow. It should be as easy as that. So what Paul understands here, and what I think maybe the people of Corinth didn't understand, is that it doesn't matter who does the work. It all comes from God anyway. Have a look in verse 5. Where do the work and the tasks come from? We can see that it comes from God, as the Lord has assigned to each his task. Verses 6 and 7. Where does the growth come from? God has been making it grow. Verses 8. Where do the rewards come from? They will each be rewarded according to their own labor. Comes from God as well. So God is doing absolutely all of the work here. Not Paul, not Apollos, not any of the other workers. So to cause division over these egos, these, these personalities, or favoritism, is just silly and a little bit immature. Paul and Apollos are on the same team. They're co-workers. They're not competitors. Verse 9 sums it up. For we are co-workers in God's service. We are God's field. God's building. For the application, in terms of how it should apply to our own lives, we need to ask ourselves, am I a spiritual baby over there in creche, stirring up needless jealousy and quarrels? Or am I focused on being God's field? In other words, grateful for any spiritual food that we receive. It doesn't matter where it comes from. If I favor one pastor over another, is that a good thing? Maybe I have a favorite home group leader. Maybe I've sneakily thought that some of the other home groups look a little bit more fun and I might, I might engineer a move over there. Or if I widen it out a little bit more, have I ever subconsciously thought to myself that I'm part of the co-mission church network? That means I must be better organized. I must be better taught. Maybe I'm even a slightly better Christian. We can become tribal about these things quite easily, can't we? I've heard the Redeemer Church in New York City they don't publish the name of the preacher for that week. Now that is fair enough because one of their preachers is Tom Keller, so we can understand that. But we can see the principle. People should be going to church to learn from God's word, not going for the personality. When we went through those leaders earlier, politics, business, all of that, if I had thrown out their Christian leaders, how easily would we have been able to put some names out there? Don Carson, John Piper, Andy Stanley. They're probably familiar names to most of us. Now, I'm not saying that we can't have favorite pastors, and I'm not saying we can't feel that some churches are better fit for us than others. We are humans. But we should ask ourselves, are we treating our leaders just like the world treats its leaders? Or are we doing everything we can to build up the church around us? We know that putting leaders on the pedestal is a really bad idea. Leaders are humans. They're weak and sinful and unreliable, and they could let us down. Let's rather focus on God, from whom all things come anyway. And let's gratefully give thanks to whatever teacher, whatever church, whatever home group leader God has given us to grow us. So that's the first section. The next section is verses 10 to 17. And what Paul does is, 
he moves from looking at the personality of the teachers and he starts looking at their work, so looking at the ministry of various teachers. And you'll see in these verses, he also expands on his illustration slightly. So in verse 9, he said, We are God's field. And that's great. We can try our best to be really diligent fields. I think the best fields we can be. But there's only so much a field can do, isn't there? So Paul expands it slightly. You can see in verse 9, he also says, We are God's building. Now the principles of the illustration are exactly the same. As a field, don't care who's doing the work, just focus on the growing. And as a building, it's the same. Let's not care who's, who's laying the foundation, who's doing the work. Let's focus on being a good building. And in these verses, so verses 10 to 17, that second section, Paul shows the readers how hard it is to be a builder. It's so easy for us. We sit in the chairs every week. It's so easy for us, the builder, the receiver of the teaching, the receiver of the hard work, to grumble or compare or criticize or, or point out the faults. So what Paul does in these verses, he shows us what life is like on the other side of the fence. He shows us that being a builder, that doing the work is very, very tough. It reminds us a bit of James chapter 3, which says, Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. And that's what Paul says in these verses as well. The teachers, so he's talking about the builders, will be judged more strictly, and they will be judged by God. So therefore, they don't need to be judged by us as well. So I think that's why in verse 11, Paul says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. He's telling us, don't judge, don't criticize, rather leave that to God. And as long as we are talking about Christian teachers, Christian builders here, then that, then that rule applies in this illustration. Obviously, if a false teacher came in here and said, guys, you all need to stop worshiping Jesus, that clearly wouldn't apply. We still need to be discerning. So I guess another way to look at what verse 11 is saying, it's saying, guys, so long as the teachers are, are teaching faithfully about Jesus, and then he carries on in verse 12 and the rest of the verses, and, and basically says, as long as that is happening, God's going to judge, and that's going to be tough enough. So you people of Corinth, you don't need to pile in on judgment as well. Okay, so these Christian teachers, they're going to be judged by God. What are they going to be judged on? I think there are a few clues in verses 12 and 13, although there are slightly cryptic clues. Verses 12 and 13 says, If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. So there's mention of the day in those verses. And that's referring to the end. It's referring to judgment day. So building for eternity, building for that judgment day, is clearly important. It's something wise. The quality of the work is going to be important. We can see that in the verse. It's all about the quality. Now that might sound really obvious, doesn't it? But it's the exact opposite of the principle that the world works on. So it's so easy to forget about. In our world, everything is for this life. How many possessions can I accumulate? How many experiences can I have? How many places can I travel to? There's no focus on eternity. It's all focused on here and now. But as Christians, we know there is a judgment day coming. We know eternity awaits. And we know that God is going to send fire to test the builder's work. 
just like we can see in verse 13. I think it's worth noting the six building materials mentioned there. You can see them in verses 12. They are gold, silver, stones, wood, hay, and straw. They're in descending order of flammability. So those first three items would burn really easily in a fire. And the next, sorry, would not, let's get that the right way around, would not burn in a fire, they're not flammable. And the next three clearly are flammable. So if you've got a house built out of gold, silver, or stones, you're going to be fine when that fire comes. You're going to be able to withstand the judgment. Anyone who knows their nursery rhymes will know that houses made out of wood, hay, or straw don't do very well against big bad wolves or against fire. So these teachers, these builders, they're going to be judged, and in fact they're going to be rewarded or not rewarded, as you can see in verse 14, by whether the work survives the judgment fire. Have they been building with gold, silver, or stones? Or have our teachers been taking shortcuts and building with wood, hay, or straw? Now in light of that, verse 15 can seem a little bit harsh, can't it? Verse 15 says, if it is burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. If you meet someone in heaven, you're having a conversation, and have a slightly singed smell to them, they were probably a pastor back in the day. <laughs> now, if they are doing the harder work, why is God so much stricter on them? Paul explains in verse 16, he says, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple, and that God's Spirit dwells in your midst? So we, that's us, the congregation, we are God's temple. It's not this building, it's not this school, it's us. God's Spirit dwells in our midst. The church, the group of people following God, are incredibly valuable in God's eyes. So therefore, anyone who's teaching, anyone who's leading, anyone who's taking responsibility in any way for God's people has to understand how important we are. It's not a job to be taken lightly, and it's one that God judges with incredibly strict standards. God's going to judge any poor quality work, any flammable work, to use the words of the illustration, very strictly. Verse 17 shows he will not just judge shoddy work harshly, not just shortcuts. He's also going to judge anything that's intentionally destructive. Any work that goes against God will also be judged very harshly. Have a look at verse 17. It says, if anyone destroys God's temple, that's more an intentional act, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. I think once again, this verse just highlights how much God loves us as His people. He looks after us, He protects us. We're God's temple and we're sacred. We are so precious to God. So I guess it's correct that anyone who teaches us is judged strictly. God isn't being overly harsh here. He's just taking His building project, He's taking us very seriously. And if He takes it seriously, so should we. We need to remember that God will judge ministry work on Judgment Day. So how do we apply that? How do we apply that section of those verses to our lives? Well, if these verses tell us that God is going to judge the work of our teachers, of those doing the building, we need to remember that that affects us. We need to remember that we have to care about it. There's a few points of application. Do these verses say that we are never allowed to analyze, never allowed to criticize or critique the work of our leaders at all? No, I don't think it's going that far. Uh, we still need to apply our mind to everything we learn. We still need to check everything against what Scripture says and make sure it is biblical. But we need to look at the reason we are criticizing or analyzing. Are we doing it just to break down and needlessly criticize? 
or are we judging to help our leaders stay focused on the correct priorities? It can be so easy to, easy to fall into the mindset of this world. We need to keep God's criteria in mind and we need to help encourage our leaders to stay focused on eternity and not fall into this world's way of thinking. How would that practically happen? What are some examples? How would we tell the difference between a church that has been built on human wisdom and worldly wisdom? And how would we compare that to a church that has been built on the principles of God? I think there are a few questions we could ask ourselves that might help. Are we trying to create a church which pleases the culture around us, which bends to its various demands? Or are we faithfully learning from God's word? Whatever it says, however unpalatable or unpopular it might be in our current political climate. Are we focused on big, flashy, entertaining church services or youth group events that just bring in a crowd and it's just for the short term? Or are we putting in the real hard yards? Are we faithfully teaching, faithfully discipling, maturing people for work that will stand the test of time, that will stand against fire and judgment day? Paul shows us in this section that building is definitely not easy, but he does also show us that judgment is real. So we need to be helping our leaders, we need to be praying for them, and we need to be encouraging them to persevere. So that's two of the sections done. We're doing well, guys. The last section is verses 18 to 22. And Paul uses this final section to sum up his argument. Basically, he wants to conclude what he's saying. And a lot of this will be familiar from chapter 2, which we looked at a few weeks ago. Now, Paul starts off verse 18 by saying, Do not deceive yourselves which I found an incredibly interesting concept. The fact that this verse exists means that it must be possible to deceive ourselves. So we can tell ourselves a lie so often, and we can do it so convincingly that we can actually, we can deceive ourselves. We can believe the lie. The voice in our head can be that persuasive. The rest of verse 18 gives the context of that. If any of you think you are wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools so that you may become wise. It's a bit of a mind twist, isn't it? If anyone thinks they are wise, they should become a fool so that they can really become wise. And what Paul is saying here, just like he did in chapter 2, is that the world and the gospel are complete opposites. If you are worldly wise, you are going to be a spiritual fool, and vice versa. You can't have it both ways. You can't be part of this world and part of the gospel kingdom. And most scary of all, certainly for myself in preparing this passage, is that we can deceive ourselves in that. We can get so caught up in this world, its values, its timelines, its priorities, that we actually will deceive ourselves. We know, we know in our hearts eternity is coming, don't we? Spiritual maturity depends on not getting caught up in this world, on not forgetting that. What, what will happen to those that are caught up? What happens to the worldly wise, the spiritually immature? Have a look in verse 19. They get caught in their craftiness. And in verse 20, the Lord knows that the thoughts of the wise are futile. So Paul makes it very clear here that those who are only worldly wise may be arrogant now, but they're going to be sad, they're going to be downcast when eternity is revealed. We know that we don't want that to happen to us. So how do we determine who is wise versus who is a fool? How do we determine who is spiritually mature or who is spiritually immature. Verse 21 starts concluding the passage, and it takes us back to the main issue, right back to the start. It says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. 
We know that the worldly wise are caught up in this world, the whole idea of idol worshipping people. And there are times when people in the church were tempted to do the same, compare Apollos and Paul and Cephas and all the other leaders. By doing this, they showed their spiritual immaturity. They showed they were part of this world. Paul tells them in verse 21 to 23, that last section there, he says they have it completely the wrong way around. He says, So then, no more boasting about human leaders. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future. All are yours, and you are of Christ, and Christ is of God. So these people, they say they belong to specific leaders. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. Paul says, yeah, guys, actually, the leaders belong to you. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, they are all serving you. They're teaching you. They're bringing you God's word. They are serving you. You have it completely the wrong way around in your thinking. So in final conclusion, we know that we all mature and age physically. That happens way too easily, doesn't it? We need to make sure we are spiritually maturing and growing to become more like Christ. This passage says there are three different things we need to do that. Firstly, from verses 1 to 9, we need to have a correct view of our human leaders. We need to make sure we're worshipping God, not idolizing specific leaders or specific churches. The second thing we need to do is verses 10 to 17. We need to remember that God is going to judge ministry work. So because of that, we need to help our leaders make sure they are building with the right priorities, building for eternity. And lastly, verses 18 to 23. We need to look to Christ for wisdom, not the world around us. We need to make sure we're not getting deceived into the world's backwards priorities and backwards ways of thinking. Let's close and pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for this word that you brought us. Thank you for this passage. Lord, we know how easy it is to be fooled into this world's short-term thinking. And Lord, we really pray that you give us that correct perspective. Keep eternity Keep judgment day in our minds. And thank you always for Christ. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.